So why don't you grab your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 10. We're starting a new chapter for us in Mark's Gospel. We're making our way through Mark's Gospel verse by verse. And I have to continue to say it's a dangerous practice going through verse by verse. Because Jesus said a lot of hard things, hard to understand, hard to accept. And when you go verse by verse, you can't skip over those. We learned last week and we encountered that again today. Last time we found that out as we encountered Jesus teaching on hell. It's not really the most fun or comfortable thing to talk about. But nonetheless, he still provided some much needed instruction and warnings on hell. And so we learned you can't afford to skip over that. And today as we turn the page to Mark chapter 10... We discover just another super cheery topic, so much fun, and that is of divorce. A group of Pharisees confronts Jesus, and they try and trap him in regards to this issue of divorce. We could see Jesus respond to them, and it's not a popular response. What he says, not back then, not today. It's like we didn't have enough controversy last week talking about hell. We get to move right into the, the hot-button issue of divorce today without a breather. And I'm I'm sure you're very excited about this. I know on your way to church this morning, you're just thinking, I hope he's going to preach on divorce. It's going to be so much fun. But nonetheless, although it's it's not the most popular of subjects, it is still much needed. We need we need a word from the Lord on this on this issue. We want when Jesus talks, we want to listen. He's giving us the word and the will of God. And just like last week, we we desperately need a word from the Lord on divorce. We all know the numbers, the, sti- the statistics these days, roughly 50% of marriages end in divorce. It's a staggering number. It has serious implications. There's going to be a real fallout for a society with divorce numbers like that. It wasn't always this way in America. Back right after the Civil War, they started keeping track of divorce records. 1867, can you guess the divorce rate in America in 1867? It was 3%. Divorce then was still socially taboo, economically unviable. By 1900, the rate climbed to 7%. That still was considered really, really low. And throughout the early 1900s, it was still low. It it totaled about 16% by 1930. And you might think it would continue to rise, but in the 30s, the divorce rate went down because of the Great Depression. People were too broke to afford even divorce or splitting up or living single. The big changes in the next decade, divorce rate really spiked in the 1940s. Of course, you can guess due to World War II. Men came home from war either emotionally scarred or, or physically handicapped, and a lot of marriages couldn't survive that. Also, a lot of women became adjusted to single working life throughout the war, and they wanted to retain that freedom. So all that goes to say, by, by 1940, the divorce rate was 20%, but by the end of the war, 1945, the rate jumped to 35%. And then one year after, when all the men were home from war in 1946, it jumped to 43%. That being said, it settled down. After that, the 40s, the 50s, the early 60s, the divorce rate settled down and went down to about 20 to 25% during that time. you got to remember, back then, it was hard to get a divorce in a sense. You had to prove to a judge that there was adultery or abuse or abandonment. You actually had to prove that to get a divorce. But that changed in the 60s and the 70s with the sexual revolution and women's liberation movements. Divorce laws changed. And for the first time, no-fault divorce went into effect. Before, somebody had to be at fault. One of the spouses had to be blamed for abuse, adultery, or abandonment. But now, couples could cite irreconcilable differences. 
And that's all we hear about today. But that, that became a new law. Basically, no one was at fault. They just didn't want to be married. People, were, they didn't want to be married for whatever reason, for any reason. So they, they got a divorce. And it's, it's not surprising that after those laws passed, the divorce rate skyrocketed. In 1970, the rate was 33%. Five years later, 1975, it was 48%. In 1980, the divorce rate was 52%. And it hasn't really turned back since then. And there's serious fallout from a society with a divorce rate of 50% or so. Everybody suffers. The couple suffers. There's emotional pain, economic ruin, sometimes physical violence, lasting hardship. The children suffer. Families are torn apart. Children are caught in the crossfire. Statistics show that children from divorced homes are sadly two times more likely to need psychological help, two times more likely to get involved in drugs, two times more likely to commit suicide. This is not to say that you can't defeat these trends. These are just statistics. But it is showing divorce takes its toll. We know that. Divorce takes its toll. And you would think that society would be trying to turn away from divorce and and to promote marriage. But today, it's, it's really just the opposite. Marriage is being abandoned and divorce is being championed. Like, it's a great thing. It's not hated. It's loved by our society. People seemingly realized in the 60s and the 70s that they finally found out what's really keeping us from true happiness after all these years, and it's the ball and chain of marriage. Just get rid of the traditional view of marriage. Free yourself, and you, you can finally be happy. The greatest good in our society became self-fulfillment. You've got to do what's right for, for you. Forget the kids, forget each other, forget others. You, you've got to make you happy. It's about number one at this point. And, of course, that worked out, right? The quest for self-fulfillment has really worked out well. Divorced people, they're, they're the happiest people on the planet, right? They're able to trade in their crummy spouse and upgrade for a better one, and now they live happily ever after. That's how it works, right? I don't think so. Now, a lot of this doesn't apply to Christians. We're going to talk later how the Lord can seriously redeem broken marriages and divorced people can, can come out to be incredibly blessed by the Lord because of what he can do with, with people who seek him. But for those in the world, there's really no hope. There's no help. It doesn't work. Divorce is not the answer to their problems. It's no wonder that divorced people are some of the most depressed people. Statistics also show, and I'm sure there's a correlation between the rise of depression in America, the staggering rise of depression, and the staggering rise of divorce. People are learning that grass is not greener on the other side. They're learning that all they have now are broken families, a lot of heartache, things aren't better. People thought they were doing what was best for themselves, but they, it doesn't work out, they're just hurt. <clears throat> now they're realizing divorce doesn't solve their problems. It's just another problem. It's adding to their problems. <clears throat> Reminds me of Proverbs 14:12, which says, There is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. This is the way of the world, the self-pleasing, self-serving way of the Lord. It's always going to end up in ruin, disaster. If only such people realize that the way of the Lord, that's actually the way to a true and lasting peace in this life and the next life. It's like Psalm 128, verse 1. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. His path is the path of peace and righteousness. And God has given us his word, his will, not to make our lives miserable. He's not up there like an ogre trying to keep us from having fun. That's not what, who God is. 
He's giving us his word to guide us, to protect us, to keep us away from sin and its disastrous effects, like any good loving father would. God wants to see us fulfilled in life. It's only that he knows where true fulfillment is found. It's in him and it's in his way. And so that's why he points us to his way. He gives us the way of peace. Psalm 1, you may know it. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. This is God's way. And where do we learn about God's way? Where is it found? It's found in Scripture. And when it comes to the huge problem of divorce in our society today, we, we need to hear a word from the Lord when it comes to comes to this issue. What does God say? What is God's way concerning marriage and divorce? We want to find out. We want to honor Him. We want to live as a witness to the world that's watching us. And that's much of what we come to find in, in Mark chapter 10. Today in Mark 10, we're going to hear from Jesus Himself the way, his way concerning marriage and divorce. Don't think this is outdated teaching because amazingly the culture surrounding Jesus is just like our culture today. Divorce was huge back then and not just the Romans but also the Jews. People supported divorce. They were getting divorced left and right for just about any old reason. Jesus lived in this culture. So we get to see him confront this culture and to react against this culture. There's a lot to say, a lot to learn this week and next. Not, not necessarily a popular message, his view on divorce, not back then, not now. But we're going to hear from the Lord himself, sit, has, sit at his feet. You know, Jesus, he's going to present the hard line on divorce. But don't mistake him for not being compassionate, as we will see next week. He is extremely compassionate toward the broken, the afflicted, the divorced, people who have been hurt. And so there's a lot to learn from Jesus on this very touchy subject. All we're going to do this morning is sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his word. Hear what he has to say about the controversial issue of, of marriage and divorce. No outline, nothing fancy. We're just going to pace our way through Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And as we do, I just pray that you, you hear from Christ himself. And you submit to, to his word, to his view on marriage and divorce. So that being said, we're just going to dive in and read this as we go. Mark chapter 10. And we're starting in verse 1. It says, Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Now, this is a transition verse. You wouldn't know it from verse 1, but Mark just skipped over six months or so of the life of Jesus. Christ has ended his Galilean ministry. That's that region up to the north, which used to be his home base. But he's done. He's leaving Galilee. He won't step foot in Galilee again until after the resurrection. So he's done up north. He moves south to Judea, Jerusalem and the surroundings. This time, this Judean ministry, it's when some opposition to Jesus really grows in Jerusalem. And later they're going to come back. They're going to kill him. But Jesus leaves, though. He leaves Judea. He goes to the region called Perea which is that's to the east of the Jordan River. 
and that's where Christ is ministering now. And, and Mark kind of skips that time, roughly five, six months or so. Takes us right to the end of that time, which is right before the crucifixion. If, you, if you're wondering a lot, what happened during those six months, well, that's what Luke's gospel is for. Luke devotes about a third of his gospel to this time. Luke chapters 10 through 18, or John chapter 7 through 11, he fills us in. But for our purposes, Mark takes us right to the end of Christ's, it's called his Perean ministry. He's ministering with his 12 disciples. He's seeking some isolation, but he doesn't get it. The crowd finds him and assembles, and Jesus uses the opportunity to teach them like he always does. But we find as he's teaching this day that some unexpected visitors show up, and they've got, they've got a trick up their sleeves. Look at verse 2. While he's teaching, it says, Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now, this is very interesting when these Pharisees show up. We know who they are, the, the great opponents of Jesus. Jesus came along exposing them as hypocrites and self-righteous, and they obviously hated him for that. They wanted nothing more than to bring Jesus down because he was bringing them down, and they wanted to get rid of him. So immediately, when we see who this question comes from, we, we know this is no simple question. They, they've got a trick up their sleeves. They're not asking Jesus about divorce as if they don't already know the answer. This whole topic of divorce has long been settled in their minds. Essentially, all the Jews by the day of Christ have come to accept divorce. It's become popular. The only disagreement was over the grounds of divorce. But even that had largely been settled. The strict school of Rabbi Shammai taught that divorce was only permissible under the grounds of unchastity or or adultery. But there's a liberal school of the school of Hillel, this rabbi, which taught that divorce was permissible for pretty much anything. Any old reason will do. You could divorce for how, whatever you want. And given sinful human nature, which view of divorce do you think was more popular among the people? It's that, that liberal school that said divorce for any old reason. People loved hearing from their religious leaders not only that, that divorce was acceptable, but you could get divorced for pretty much any old reason. And these religious leaders even found a Bible verse to attach to their views, they thought. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, describes a wife finding no favor in her husband because of some indecency found in her. So he writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her away. This became their go-to verse, and they claimed that this indecency could pretty much mean anything, anything you could think of. So if the wife did anything wrong in the eyes of her husband, he could just kick her to the curb. And by Christ's day, this, this had gotten extreme, seriously extreme. We hear of men divorcing their wives because they let their hair down in public or they were caught talking to another man, just talking to him on the street. Men divorced their wives just because they found someone prettier or less contentious. We also have records of men bitterly divorcing their wives because they spoiled dinner. There's no joke. These are records, but we know it's obviously, they're pretty lame excuses. But you just had, you needed any excuse. This was a culture that supported divorce for any reason. So if your wife burnt your toast or cut her hair too short, you could kick her to the curb. You could feel justified about it. As long as you give her a little certificate of divorce, you're good to go. All this goes to say, these Pharisees, they already had a view on divorce. They already felt and believed 
that divorce was lawful. So when they come to Jesus asking, hey, is it lawful to divorce your wife? They're not asking because they don't know the answer. Rather, as verse 2 says, it's a test, it's a trap. This word for test has a connotation of being a trap. They're trying to trap Jesus in an answer. It's like a mousetrap. Mousetrap can be construed as a test for mice. You're testing them. See if they can get the cheese without setting off the trap. Now, of course, chances are, no, they can't. And your desire, you want them to fail the test. You want them to spring the trap and be killed. And likewise, these Pharisees, they're trying to test Jesus, but they really want to trap him. They want to bring him down. They want to see him stumble here. You see, the Pharisees, they already know what Jesus thinks about divorce. He's already taught on it. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, which is not in Mark, it's in Matthew chapters 5-7, through seven, he already taught about divorce. They know that Jesus is a hardliner when it comes to divorce. He does not support the popular view of divorce for any old reason. So this question is a way to try and expose Jesus as being too strict. Remember, Jesus was a rabbi. And they wanted to show he was so strict compared to the other rabbis. If Jesus were to turn around and start condemning divorce with all this crowd here, he would become real unpopular with that crowd real fast because they all supported divorce. They could even claim that if Jesus opposed divorce, he was unorthodox because they would just throw out Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, is in their back pocket ready to go. They could claim he's going against the law of Moses. So this, is, this whole thing is a test to try and discredit and diminish Jesus. And additionally, this may have been a trap to try and kill Jesus. And you wonder how. Well, where is this taking place? Again, it says beyond the Jordans, that region called Perea. Who has jurisdiction over this region? This guy named Herod Antipas. We learned about him in Mark chapter 6. One of the rulers, he was another Herod, a lot of Herods. This guy, Herod Antipas. Now, this guy, Herod, if you remember from Mark 6, he was married. Married to his wife. But he got tired of her. He ditched her. And he took his brother's wife, Herodias. She ditched his brother and they got married. So Herod basically stole his brother's wife, Herodias. This was unlawful. This was wrong. And you know, John the Baptist, he came and he preached to Herod's face, what you're doing is wrong. John said to Herod, the ruler, he said in Mark chapter 6, 18, he said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's the same word lawful, by the way. Of course, that didn't make Herod very happy, and that did make his new wife Herodias very happy. So Herod had John imprisoned over this, and his wife Herodias found a way to get John executed over this. They took his head. So what's the takeaway from John the Baptist and Herod? The lesson is, you don't want to preach about marriage and divorce before Herod. You don't want to tell him that divorce is wrong before him because you just might be killed. And don't think for a second that that lesson fell on deaf ears with the Pharisees. We already know that they had allied themselves with their old enemies called the Herodians in an effort to take Jesus down. So we wonder, is this a ploy to have Christ's narrow view of divorce be brought to the attention of Herod now that Christ is in this region of Perea with the hopes that Herod will have Jesus arrested just like John and Herodias might have Jesus killed just like John. 
All we know is if that's the case, we wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't put it past the Pharisees for, for hatching this whole plan to try and really take Jesus down because this is a stumbling issue. This issue of divorce is so touchy, so divisive, so unpopular. They were banking on this, discrediting Jesus and people hating him over it. And you know what? People today, they, they still do. But Jesus doesn't fall for their trap. He's not going to fall for their games. Look at his, his response in verse 3. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? In verse 3, he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Stop there. And see what he's doing here. Their view of divorce for any old reason, it's not biblical. It's it's been derived by these rabbis over the years and their interpretations, their customs. But with just a few words, Jesus entirely tosses away everything these rabbis ever said about divorce. He doesn't care what their teachings were, what their customs were, their traditions. The only thing that matters in this issue is, what does God say? What is God's word? What is God's will? Forget all this human input, all this tradition you've developed over the years. It doesn't matter. What, What does God say about the issue? That's what matters if you claim to be followers of God. And as a side note, that's a real lesson to learn when it comes to anything. You want to know what to do in life, where to go, how to live. Well, start by eliminating all the human input in your life and then just ask yourself, what does God say? Does God say anything? Are there commands? Is there some wisdom, some guidance from his word? For instance, you you want to improve your marriage. Go to a bookstore, you find aisles and aisles of books on how to have a better marriage. And you can almost just picture Jesus coming along sweeping away all those books, putting them all in a big trash bin, and he puts one book on the empty shelves. It's the Bible. The point is, what does God say? Go there. At least start there. If God doesn't say anything, well, you can look for his wisdom, but, but what does God say? So Jesus turns the table on the Pharisees, but that's not all. Verse 3, he's actually issuing a counter trap. Now, he's trying to trap them because he doesn't ask them, hey, what did Moses say? He said, what did Moses command? And that's not a meaningless word. You'll see how that word command comes into play in a second. The Pharisees, they're quick to respond. And they finally, they bring out their, their key verse, their pocket verse, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. This is their response. Jesus said, what did Moses command you? In verse 4, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce, and sent her away. And notice they changed the word. They didn't say Moses commanded. They're already forced to concede a little bit of ground because in reality, there is no command to divorce. Moses never gave a command to divorce your wife. It's never commanded anywhere. There's no command to divorce. Instead, Moses simply permitted divorce. So they're already giving up some ground on the issue. But still, they still believe Deuteronomy 24 supports their view. And we're just going to have to see for ourselves, aren't we? So, so put a bookmark in Mark 10. And I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 24. We're going to look at this real quick. I want you to see for yourself. You know, if you need some help, you're using a pew Bible. It's page 150, if I'm not mistaken. But Deuteronomy 24. I want you to see how much they abuse this verse. It's, it's almost funny. 
The Old Testament says very little about divorce. Next to nothing. Very little. But this was their one passage, their only passage that they could twist and, and change in order to support their practice. But as we read it, you tell me, where's the command? Where's the prescription? You know the difference between description and prescription? It's describing something versus prescribing something. We're going to read this, Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. You tell me, where's the command here? Verse 1, Deuteronomy 24. Moses writing, Law of Moses, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God as which, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. You catch all that? Then we're going to explain a little bit. But already, it sounds nothing like what the Pharisees are making it out to, to mean. You get the impression if you just hear from them that you know, Moses is supporting divorce. He's like, yeah, I get divorced for any old reason. But that's not what this passage is saying at all. In fact, this passage neither commands nor commends nor even condones divorce. It's meant rather to stop divorce, or at the very least, to regulate divorce to protect the woman. Now, let's talk about the situation. You notice this is super specific, right? It's talking about one specific case, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it's talking about a man, marries a woman, but then he finds some indecency in her. That's a huge debate. What's that word mean? The answer is we don't really know for sure. It's not adultery. Because back then, adultery came with the death penalty. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, God's word said adultery came with the death penalty. So, at the very least, this indecency, it's some immoral act, some shameful act. So anyway, the husband decides to divorce her over this indecency. Notice, that's not being commanded. He's not commanded to do this. This is just descriptive language, saying this is what happened, not this is what should happen. But this is what happened. The husband divorces his wife, and he writes her a certificate of divorce before kicking her out. Now that certificate, that's the only good thing he did in this whole scenario. If you remember back then, women were powerless. You're not, you're not going to get a job. You're not going to earn an income. There's no, it, was not, it was a man's world back then, so to speak. They were very powerless, and if they were kicked to the curb, starvation was a real possibility. Seriously. And so that's why women would marry or remarry ASAP. They're going to get remarried. But if they've been kicked out of their household by their husband, the standing assumption was they, they committed adultery. And so they would live with the threat of being stoned to death or, at the very least, ostracized if the Jews didn't enforce the death penalty. And, you know, for most of their history, they didn't enforce the death penalty for adultery. So they're wearing the scarlet letter. They can't get remarried. No husband is ever going to take her if she's been kicked out. They're, they're, they're going to be destitute. 
Therefore, they devised this certificate of divorce. And it was designed as a way to send your wife away with a clear name. This is not commanded either. It's just something they did. But nonetheless, it was a practice where they would, they would write this certificate. It would say, Behold, you are free to marry any man. And the wife, she took the certificate and she was free to remarry. She was free from the accusation of adultery. And she was free to go. And that she did. Verse 2 says, Naturally, this woman quickly remarried. That's what they did. They had to. She quickly remarried, verse 2. But in this given scenario, and remember, this is just one scenario that Moses gives. In this given scenario, her new husband, he also doesn't like her, kicks her out, or he dies. But she finds herself single once again, unmarried once again, right? You're tracking? Then we get to verse 4, and, and this is it. This is the only prescription or command in the whole thing in verse 4 where it says if this happens that first husband he's not allowed to take her back as his wife again that's it that's the only command or prescription that first husband you can't you can't take her back if she's been if you divorced her she went remarried now she's single again you can't take her back that's it there's no command to divorce this is just a prohibition of remarriage to a previously divorced wife. Now, this is strange. And so I know you're probably still a bit confused. You're thinking, why, why is this even in the Bible? Why did God, through Moses, even include this? Well, in, in, in the giving of the law, this is known as case law. Case law is where you go over a very specific scenario that tends to happen and you regulate it to prevent further abuse. And so why is this even in here, in Deuteronomy, that, that Moses gave this to the people? Well, for a couple of reasons. For one, this case law was given to prevent women from being treated like cars. This goes to say to husbands, you can't test drive a wife, kick her to the curb, try and get a trade-in for something better, but hope you can get her back if you don't find anything better. You can't do that. That's what this is for, to stop that. This case law is given to prevent divorce and remarriage from becoming a legal form of adultery. You think about that? If you can just divorce and remarry for, for the fun of it at will, it basically becomes a legal form of adultery. Just divorce, marry someone else, try her out, kick her away, take your wife back, you just trade around. No. This is putting a stop to that. That is not lawful before the Lord, of course. And along these lines, this passage is also given to discourage divorce. It's telling the husband, you better think twice before you get rid of your wife. Because if you kick her out for some indecency and she remarries, you will never get her back. You are not allowed to ever take her back. It's trying to stop trivial divorce. The whole thrust behind it is to stop this type of practice in Israel. Hopefully you can see, though, clearly there's no command to divorce. Right? There, there's no command, even a commendation to, to divorce. It's not promoting divorce. It's describing a divorce, but even that, it's not being smiled upon. It's trying to prevent such divorces, or at least regulate them to prevent further abuse. And sadly, what's at the root of this whole situation? Why does Moses even have to talk like this? Because this passage exists because God knows men are desperately wicked. Men are sinners, and they are tend and prone to take advantage of their wives. 
And so God includes this to stem the tide of man's wickedness. And isn't that what Jesus says next in Mark chapter 10? He asks them, what did Moses command? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. But verse 5, you can turn back to Mark 10. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Jesus is basically saying this whole Deuteronomy 24 passage, far from being a command on divorce, it's a concession on divorce. God conceded divorce in a special circumstance, not because it's a good thing, but only because it's the lesser of two evils. That's it. It's not good. The Pharisees, they tried to warp and manipulate this passage to justify getting divorced for any old reason, just for the fun of it, as if Moses smiled upon it. As long as they wrote that certificate of divorce, you're good to go. You can kick your wife out. Who cares about her and the kids? Kick her out. But if you write that certificate of divorce, you have a clean conscience. You're you're doing it according to the law. That Christ says, not even close. If these Jews followed the letter of this law and even the spirit of this law, their divorces would be few and far between. Not every other person. The Jews thought they found a divorce loophole in the Old Testament, but Christ in Mark 10, he is closing that loophole real tight. There is no loophole. It's just another case of wicked sinners trying to warp God's word to justify their evil desires in order to ease their guilty consciences. But it doesn't work. This is not God's way. This culture of easy divorce is not God's way. God does not smile on such practices. He condemns such practices because they go against his will. They go against his word. So now we ask, though, okay, well, if God doesn't like this, What is his will and word on marriage and divorce? And that's what Christ says next in Mark chapter 10. Let's read a chunk here, verses 6 through 9. He continues. He says, verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What Jesus is doing here, he's taking their false manipulation of the law of Moses and he's trumping it with an accurate description of God's word, which is also found in the law of Moses. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's what he's quoting here. From the very beginning, God revealed his will for marriage, his plan, his design. And Jesus just repeats it. It's all he's doing. First in verse 6, He teaches that marriage is God's idea. It's God's idea. Man didn't invent marriage. Marriage is not a culturally convenient custom. It is truly a divine institution. God God planned it all out. It's his idea. He thought of it, the whole thing, from the beginning. It's God's idea. It's also God's design. God designed marriage to be a union of two people. Not three people, not four people, but just Two people, and two people of different sexes. Jesus himself roots what he's saying in the created order. God made them male and female. That, that's why God made them male and female. God's plan was for two different sexes to come together in marriage to make one unit. That's the whole point. God's design was for male and female to come together. 
And these two are designed to come together in a profound way. Verse 8 says these two shall become not two, but one. You have two flesh, but they become one flesh. This profound union. It's the strongest human bond that we have. It even goes beyond the parent-child bond. You parents, you probably think you're pretty close to your kids, but you know what? In God's eyes, you're not one flesh with your kids. You're only one flesh with your spouse. You have no stronger bond in life than with your spouse. And when you get married, you actually break the parent-child bond. It says you leave father and mother behind and you cleave to your spouse. That's a good thing. That's, that's how it's meant to be. That's God's design. That's a good thing. God has designed that through this new union, husband and wife, this one flesh union, that new life comes into existence. Isn't that so profound? Think about God's the creator. How does he create new human beings? Where do they come from? He could just snap his fingers and there's a baby. Just pops out of nowhere, here's a baby. But he has chosen in his plan to use this union of, of man and woman coming together in a one flesh union to create life. From nothing, there's life. It's so amazing. Two people come together and here comes a third person who is literally the one flesh product of his or her parents. The child is an inseparable blend of their parents. And really that's a picture of their marriage. It's two becoming one flesh and you can't split that up. You can't divide a child. It's just one person. And so it is with marriage. This is God's design for marriage. Marriage is God's idea. It's God's design. It's also God's union. Verse 9, he says, What God has joined together, let no man separate. You don't want to go against God's will. He says, I'm bringing them together. Believer, unbeliever, it doesn't matter. You're bringing them together. Don't separate. Don't split them up. God designed marriage to be a permanent relationship. This is meant to be a bond that's so strong, it doesn't break. And sometimes when I do woodworking projects that involved screwing together two pieces of wood, I'll add some wood glue. You may wonder, why would you add wood glue? Aren't the screws strong enough to hold the pieces together? And yeah, they are, but, but I add wood glue because it makes an even stronger bond. And you use the wood glue when you want it to be a permanent bond. When you never intend for those two pieces to ever separate ever again. And that's what it's like with marriage. God takes two people and he glues them together. And he never intends for them to ever separate. So you, you look at Jesus who's just reflecting Genesis 1 and 2, God's plan for marriage. And you tell me, where's divorce in that plan? Where, where does divorce fit into God's design for marriage? It's not there. Jesus, who, by the way, literally believes in Genesis 1 and 2. He thinks that's all literal truth, but he's teaching us that this is God's will for marriage and the family. And in that plan, divorce has no role. Marriage is between one man, one woman, for life, until death do them part. What God has joined together, let no man separate. This is God's idea, God's design, God's union. Marriage. God says yes, divorce, God says no. Marriage, God loves it. Divorce, God hates it. That's not my, those aren't my words. The Old Testament ends, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord himself says, I hate divorce. The Lord hates 
divorce. 400 years later, the Pharisees are running around. Oh, we love divorce. God loves divorce. But Christ shuts the door real hard on that. He says, no, he doesn't. What God has joined together, let no man separate. That's God's will for marriage and the family. So you ask, was Jesus a hardliner on divorce? Yeah. He gave the Pharisees more than they bargained for when it comes to this whole issue on divorce. But what could they say? How could they respond? All he's doing is quoting Genesis 1 and 2. So if they oppose him, they're just opposing God and the law of Moses. And you know what? The same is true today. For all those who don't like what Jesus says about divorce, you're merely opposing God himself. Take it or leave it. And the Pharisees, well, they left. They left it. Instead of submitting to Christ and heeding God's word, which is true, they just walked away. They're not going to tolerate that. They're going to continue with what they believe. A lot of people today do the same thing. They, they don't want none of that. They enjoy their, their uh, casual divorce. So they walk away. But the disciples, the scene changes now in verse 10. The disciples, they stick around. Even when Jesus said really extreme things like this, the disciples stick around. You know, we get the impression, though, that the disciples, they too may have had a lax view on divorce because when when the Pharisees leave and they get Jesus alone in a house, they are quick to ask him some questions. They are not satisfied with what he just said. Like, this is extreme. Like, Jesus, are you serious? Are you saying, like, no divorce? It's really that bad? Like, you need to tell us some more here. And when they get Jesus alone and question him, in reality, he only turns up the heat. It actually gets a little bit worse. And look what he says now to the disciples in verse 10. It says, In the house the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. That's the end of the passage. You can see Jesus, he's taking it even further. Not only is he opposing divorce, but if you go through divorce and then you remarry, he's saying you now commit adultery. Male, female, doesn't matter. And this, this sounds super extreme, but we're in the same boat. What can we say? It's coming from the mouth of Jesus. Which, what can we say? He's saying illegitimate divorce followed by remarriage is akin to adultery because you are wrongly breaking apart the one flesh union and you're being joined to another flesh. God does not approve. Overall, are you getting the picture? God doesn't like divorce. He does not favor divorce. The Pharisees asked Jesus the question, is it lawful to divorce your wife? And you can gather his answer pretty much, no. No, it's not lawful to divorce. Divorce plays no role in God's idea, God's design, God's union between man and woman. God hates divorce. Now the passage is over, but I want you to stop and just listen. Some of you, you're, you're wondering, you're thinking, man, this, this is extreme. Is Jesus, and is Pastor Eric, is he one of those guys that teaches no divorce, no remarriage under any circumstances whatsoever? The answer is no. Actually, no guys like that. I'm not one of those guys, and neither is the Lord. I want to do a little more explaining here. 
you have to just stop and think, what is Jesus trying to accomplish in this whole passage? This is kind of a harsh passage, passage, right? What's he trying to accomplish? What's he doing in Mark 10? He is responding to opponents who have an extremely false view of divorce. And so he is giving them the hard line. He is being upfront and personal with them. And, but it's true. God's will is for marriages to last permanently with no divorce. That's God's design. That's God's ideal. God does not support this whole notion of divorce for any old reason. But you have to realize Jesus, he's being so extreme because he's trying to slam the door shut on this toxic culture of divorce for any old reason. And first and foremost, if that's something that you support, if you came in here today thinking, yeah, divorce for any old reason, I've got no problem with that, you need to let Jesus himself challenge you. If you're his disciple, you need to let his words challenge the way you think because that's not how the Lord thinks. You need to realize God has a really high view of marriage and a really low view of divorce. And if you follow him, that needs to challenge you. And then that's not our culture, but let that become your view. But that being said, this is not the only word on marriage and divorce in Scripture. It's not the last word. And I still want you to know that God, he knows what he's dealing with. God knows that he's dealing with fallen, depraved humanity. And God is still compassionate and mercy for the innocent, for the abused, for the one who's taken advantage of. God knows there will be times when one person's sin gets so bad that the door of divorce must be cracked open to mercifully let the innocent party live a life of peace. God, he always hates divorce. He does. But sometimes God allows divorce as the lesser of two evils. God never flings the door of divorce wide open for any old reason. But Scripture does teach that the door of divorce may be cracked open where people can enter sin-free under two occasions. The first, that Jesus himself taught, we'll see later, in the case of adultery, you can be divorced without sinning. And then Paul goes on to include the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. These are the two exceptions or permissions that God gives for divorce, even in the New Testament. And once again, it, it shouldn't be this way. We wish it never happened. It's just living in a fallen world. But because of man's continued hardness of heart, God has allowed these two concessions as a mercy. Sometimes people take their sin to an extreme, and he does provide a way out. But I know you're still probably like the disciples. You still have more questions. You want to get Jesus alone in that house and just pick his brain. Like, you need to tell us more here. Like, Okay, there's some exceptions. We need to know more about those. Like, is, that, is those legitimate? Is that really taught? What does that mean? Also, if you're saying God hates divorce, but sometimes he allows it, and if I get that divorce, does that mean I'm still sinning or not? And what do I do if I have an illegitimate divorce in my past? Does that mean like I'm not saved or something? Or what do I do? What if I'm living in an illegitimate remarriage right now? Does that mean I'm living in adultery and I'm forever an adulterer? Like, what do you do? Are you saying I should divorce my current spouse and try and reconcile with my first spouse? I mean, is my relationship with God hindered 
because I've been divorced or remarried? Am I less of a Christian? Can I even be a Christian? I'm sure you have questions. I've got questions. More questions on this issue. You need to realize Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, he's not speaking pastorally to his sheep. He's speaking correctively to wolves. He is responding harshly to people, to his opponents, who are abusing his word and the will of God, and he's trying to put a stop to it. But you shouldn't expect that this to be the only thing Jesus said about divorce here in Mark 10, to be his only word or his final word, and it's not. There is more to be said from the rest of the New Testament. So all that being said, last week we had to return, we had to do a part two when it came to what Jesus said about hell because it was such a vast topic. We needed to know more. And guess what? We must return next week to do a part two on this whole issue of divorce. There's more to be said. There's more that needs to be said. I know you're excited for it. It's such a fun topic. It really lifts you up. But but hopefully we'll answer all the questions you have because we need to hear the word of the Lord on this issue. We just need to know. Just tell us the way, the path to peace. Jesus gives us that path. We need to know. So I'll say make sure you're here for next week. But for now, though, still don't discount what he said. He's giving the hard line on divorce, but it's still, it's still God's will. He's still speaking truthfully in Mark 10. It's extreme, but, but you need to let it sink in that God, God actually does hate divorce, and he hates a culture that loves divorce. Sometimes divorce may be needed as the lesser of two evils, but it's not something we should celebrate. We should mourn when there's a divorce because it's merely another casualty in our fallen world of sin. But let Jesus challenge your views of marriage and divorce. Again, don't take my word for any of this. Just read for yourself. But if you follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, you need to come to embrace his really high view of marriage and his low view of divorce. It's so profound that that's the one analogy that Jesus uses to describe his relationship with the church, Christ and the church, husband and wife. Granted, I know this is the opposite of our culture today. Our culture has the lowest view of marriage and the highest view of divorce. But Jesus calls us to be countercultural in so many ways. And so if we follow him as his disciples, he's calling us to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to follow him in all ways. And that this is a part of that. And just as a final thought now, I want to, I know it's been, it's, this is a harsh passage, it's extreme, but I want to leave you with some encouragement a little bit of encouragement, speaking to you pastorally. Again, Jesus, it's not his intention here to speak as a pastor. He's not talking to his sheep. He's talking to wolves. So he gives them the rough edges. But you here, you're not wolves. I trust you are sheep, Christ's sheep. And he has a pastoral word for you that we're going to see next week, but by way of preview. You need to know divorce is not some sort of unpardonable sin doesn't make you a second-class person or a second-class Christian. You know, maybe you've done wrong in the past. Maybe you, you have. Maybe you've been at fault, but God can forgive. Or maybe you've been wronged. You've been the innocent party. God can redeem. He can still redeem. I know just about everyone in this room, you've been divorced or you know somebody's been divorced. 
You've got a friend, a relative. I have. We all have this in our lives. We've all been touched by divorce in one way or another, haven't we? This is our culture. And whether it's legitimate or not, divorce is merely a reflection of our sin and our brokenness. But you've got to remember, that's why Jesus came. He came to redeem us from sin and brokenness. Whether that includes divorce or not, it doesn't really matter. So maybe you've had a bad marriage in the past, or a bad divorce in your past, or a bad remarriage in your past, even right now. And I can't say it's not a big deal, forget about it, but I can say, if you've done wrong, if you've sinned, the Lord can still forgive you. He can totally redeem you and make you his own. He can redeem your future, and that's what matters. And you should be encouraged by that. Because look, we've all done wrong in our past. I have. You know, I'm not divorced, but one way or another, it really doesn't matter. We're all in the same boat. We're all fallen, broken sinners in this world. All of us, whether you've been, been divorced or not. And Christ has compassion for those who know how broken they are, and they go to him for a new life. And that's what he gives. You're born again. You have a new life. You start over. And so you are not second class, but in, in God's eyes, we're all his children, and he loves those who seek him. And I'll say this, some of the greatest Christians are those who have the darkest pasts, because like the woman caught in adultery, they know how much they've been forgiven of. And so they're ready to love the Lord all the more, to be devoted to him all the more, to follow him all the more. We can be encouraged in that. Let this be your commitment as his disciples. He came to redeem us from all of our sin, whether that includes divorce or not. And we're all sin-cursed, broken people. But as we place our faith in Jesus and follow him, it should really only translate into greater devotion, greater thankfulness, because he has redeemed all of us from, from the pit. As Jesus said, the one who is forgiven of much, loves much. So whatever all of us have in our past, we go to the Lord he forgives, he gives new life, and we love him all the more because he's our Savior who came to redeem us from these sins. Well, let's pray for now and we'll see you next week. Lord, we bow before you. We are in, in a way humbled and confronted by your word. Lord, we live in a culture much like the one you lived in on earth that is, is so radically different from your word. It's a, it's a culture of self-pleasure, self-fulfillment, even at the cost of hurting others, and therefore divorce runs rampant. And we've all been hurt by it, affected by it, one way or another. Lord, we hear your will on it, and it confronts this culture, and I pray if we have bought into the culture that we turn away. I pray you give us and help us to have a high view of marriage. It is a, such a blessing when done in your will and your word, and a low view of divorce, to not celebrate it, uh, but to, to avoid it at all costs. Still, Lord, it can be allowed. You are merciful in that way, and we even thank you for that. And we thank you all the more so that you just redeem us from all the brokenness in life. Lord, divorce is just merely a reflection of how fallen and broken this whole world is, which is due to sin, all of our sin. And so I pray we can just reflect on the fact that you sent Jesus to earth to live not to run around condemning people and sending everyone to hell, but he first came to save, to redeem such sinners, like the adulterer or the divorcee or the, just the sinner in general. We can be redeemed by him if we confess our sin and run to him.
place our faith on His finished work in the cross and trust in His resurrection, that we will be given new life. And in many ways, it is like starting afresh. We are new in Christ, we are perfect in Christ, and we just thank you for that. And we, we pray you encourage us with these words. Keep us tight till next week, Lord, and we see more on what you say about divorce. Uh, but in all things, we, we trust you, we submit to your word, and we pray that you are glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.